When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, we've reached the end of Trump's first 100 days. How will it be remembered? In many ways, it's been like watching someone's body reject an organ transplant. Somehow, Trump has managed to hit the century mark at the threshold of a government shutdown fight with his own party. Nevertheless, some things never change, and 100 days into the Trump presidency, we can report with confidence that everything remains really, really great for people who are really, really rich. Meanwhile, we're taking a look at the mayoral race in Omaha, Nebraska, which would normally be a very sleepy race focused mainly on things like potholes. That's literally the truth. But the Democratic nominee, Heath Mello, has become one of those totemic candidates in 2017, a test of post-2016 Democratic Party strength. And so Democrats made a big investment in raising his profile, only to discover that he was not with them on a key issue, reproductive rights. Finally, our guest today is Jonathan Taplin, a filmmaker and author who used to be a tour promoter for Bob Dylan, but now he's turning his attention to Silicon Valley and tech monopolies in a new book titled Move Fast and Break Stuff, How Facebook, Google, and Amazon Cornered Culture and Undermined Democracy. I'm Jason Lincolns with HuffPost reporters Laura Bassett, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Daniel Marins. Here's what happened first. everyone welcome again to another edition of so that happened your daily digest of the velvet mornings and iron evenings of our american lives my name is jason lincolns i'm the editor of eat the press at huff post we have a new name it's huff post the ington has now gone to live with other disconnected phonemes it has sunk to the bottom of the wine dark sea it has sunk to the bottom of the wine dark sea i'm joined obviously by other people they're the same people that you probably know associate with this zach carter hi and then a little bit to his left arthur delaney hi 100 days man 100 days by the time you listen to this no now we don't know when you're listening to this you could be listening to it now you could be listening to it tomorrow the 100th day is saturday and if you're listening to it on Saturday, we don't know if the government is open. You know, we're recording this before. Yes, it's a completely that time. natural thing for for the a president of one party uh, faced with two houses of Congress controlled by the same party to be involved in a government shutdown within 100 days of government. Listen, yeah, here's what's happening. Wild. <laughs> the, the, the Donald Trump's desire to have some sort of achievement he can boast about within his first 100 days has led his administration to furious, furiously try to get Congress to do something. Anything. Anything. They it, dragged the Senate up to, up to the White House on a bus yesterday to give them a briefing on North Korea. And then the White House briefers traveled to Capitol Hill to give the House the briefers briefing. And nobody understood what was the Crazy. point of that. And so the government, so Congress was getting ready to have an omnibus funding bill. Speaking of buses, that's what they call it. And the Trump administration this spring said, "You know what? We want uh, you to repeal Obamacare too, and we have a, you know a whole bunch of budget cuts we want in this omnibus, and we want you to fund our really stupid border wall." And essentially, members of Congress have been saying, "No, no, no." 
Democrats said it a little louder, but Republicans have been saying it this whole time. And that's what's brought us to the brink of a government shutdown that may or may not have all, you know, taken place. We think probably not. Which just, just to be clear, yeah, when we have had government shutdowns in recent years, they have occurred because one party, the Republican Party, was going to ideological war with another party, the Democratic Party. President Barack Obama was the president, and Republicans in Congress didn't want to fund his projects. We just to be crystal clear, Republicans in the House and Senate may shut down the government because they cannot get along with Republican President Donald Trump. Right. So there's that no divided unusual. government right now. It's right. unusual for this to even be a topic of conversation when one party is in total control. So I can't in, wait for the debt ceiling. So in the middle – so in the what, what was so striking and what, what so seemed to be uh, desperate on the Trump administration's part was that they've got their hands full with whether they'll fund the government. And so Trump also demands that they repeal Obamacare. Yes. You know, it's funny. It's funny that to think about how Trump is having all these problems with Congress. Trump has sort of bought the idea that Paul Ryan incepted in him, which is that – and I understand why Paul Ryan wants to do this because it makes perfect sense for his for his sort of like glorious dreams. But Paul Ryan has told Trump that you have to do health care first. Uh, because you need to repeal taxes in healthcare, and when you repeal taxes in healthcare, you shift the revenue baseline to a place where then Paul Ryan can pass a tax reform bill, and then on top of that, pass a tax cut. The goal that the Paul tax Ryan cut will wants, be bigger if they do yeah, Obamacare first. That's not just not just bigger if they kill Obamacare f- first and get the tax reform. In, in place, and they, and also part of this mix, and this is what makes it really ambitious and crazy for Paul Ryan to even su- have suggested this. What also needs to happen is there needs to be the, the Congress needs to pass a border adjustment tax. Which, if you think if you think Republicans are having trouble swallowing their own health care replacement plan, wait till they're presented with the choice of whether to vote for or against a, a border adjustment tax. But the point is, is that what Ryan wants to do is not just pass a tax cut, but pass a permanent tax cut. Uh, he wants to avoid budgets, budget reconciliation, and he wants to pass something that doesn't expire in 10 years. He, Ryan is the one who has kind of, I think, given Trump this notion that the opportunity he needs to focus on is a, a, a once-in-a-generation sort of tax cut for the wealthy. So that so. Republicans had these things they wanted to do, tax reform, repeal Obamacare, and that's why last year they did not want to have a short-term continuing resolution that funded government operations only until April 28th. They were going to pass an omnibus back then that would get us through to the next fiscal year. And the Trump transition team was like, no, pass a short-term CR so that we can weigh in with our policy priorities. And members of Congress were like, okay. And when I was on the Hill on Wednesday – all these Republicans were saying was like, man, we thought that was going to be stupid, and we were proven right. <laughs> That's what Susan Collins said. John Thune said it. Uh, <laughs> and it was obvious. The, the Trump administration Trump, – Donald Trump does not have the art of the deal. His vaunted deal-making skills actually turn out to suck. To be fair, that is because he's in a party that uh, is kind of nuts. I mean the House Republicans – can't decide whether they want to take health care away from 24 million people or whether taking health care away from 24 million people is not mean enough. Well, their point, was, their point was merely this. We could be fighting over Obamacare and tax reform without having to worry about the freaking government shutting down this week. We without have holding, be- holding themselves hostage. <laughs> They're yes. holding themselves politically hostage. So in the, in the midst of all this – the Trump administration yesterday said on Wednesday said we're gonna we're gonna pull out of NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which if they did pull out of it would have massive repercussions. Very for, significant. You know, move. prices going up, jobs disappearing, things of that nature. And then later in the day said, actually, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. Yeah, so he got it, on the phone with with uh, Trudeau and Pina Nieto and. Completely reverse his position. That's. I mean, you talk about the art of the deal. It's kind of funny. It's, it's, they talked him out of Tr- it. Trump. Trump throws a bluff down, and like literally, the amount of time it takes for Trump to like give over the bluff is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And and on Wednesday, they dropped their tax proposal. Like, here's how we want to oh, change. <laughs> yes, taxes. Like almost literally on a paper towel, they wrote their tax proposal. It's well, you know, there's a there's an old story. Uh, about a, an economist named Art Laffer, 
who literally drew a Reagan tax proposal on on a napkin. Did he literally, um, or is that a li- li- literally did it? And uh, and the idea behind the Laffer curve, as they call it, is that if you if tax rates are at a certain if, if tax rates are high enough, then if you cut taxes and it causes economic growth, then the tax cuts can actually pay for themselves. And there are so many conservative economists who think that during the 70s and 80s, tax cuts were, in fact, paying for themselves. It's pretty clear that they actually did do this in, in the uh, Kennedy administration. Well, we, uh, had, we but, had a top marginal tax rate of 90% exactly. at that time. Right. Now we have a top marginal tax rate of 36%, uh, 39.8% on some people. And uh, – and and so it's it's not at all clear that cutting taxes on those people will uh, will end up growing the economy. Well, I mean, wait, wait, don't didn't we do an experiment on this in real life when we cut taxes massively in two thousand and one and two thousand? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. And I what? And that. didn't didn't we just get like meager growth and giant deficits? Well, and then ultimately a financial crisis because cutting all of the taxes for these people at the top, including capital gains taxes, which are taxes on investments, poured a lot of money into Wall Street, which then poured it into shitty mortgages and then blew up the world. Okay, so Trump wants so, – so the Trump administration on Wednesday is like, here's our tax plan. What is it? It is, it is cutting taxes for the rich. Uh, Almost they, exclusively. They laid out no, a whole don't, but don't you – aren't there also these standard deductions that wipe out taxes for, for low-income people? Some, yeah. By, by doubling the standard deduction, what you do is essentially exempt more income from taxation for people. But the main thrust of the, uh, of the, of the plan is eliminating the estate tax. That's the tax on the richest of the uh, on Richie Rich. Literally, the zero point two percent richest of households. Uh, you only uh, uh, for couples when they die, only the income above eleven million dollars gets taxed by the estate tax. It is a tax on the inheritances of heirs and heiresses to millionaire fortunes. So they want to get rid of that. Uh, apparently, that's going to help grow the economy. <laughs> they want to get rid of – they want to cut the corporate tax rate from 35 percent to 15 percent. That would cost $2.4 trillion. That is a tax cut for rich people because rich people own stocks. Corporate profits are the things that get taxed. They flow through to the people who own the stocks. And uh, the, the third one was – what was the fun? Oh, the Obamacare tax on capital gains. Again – Which they're also trying to eliminate through their Obamacare repeal bill. Yes. But this is a tax on uh, dividends, right, for people with high incomes. An additional 3.8% tax on people who make at least $200,000 a year, only on their investment income from stocks, bonds, and real estate. Now, you basically just actually read the Trump tax plan because it was on one piece of paper. It was like 100 <laughs> Triple words. Triple space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think they could, they could, argue, they could argue is, uh, well, a good way to start because we don't want to get bogged down in – details we want Congress to do it, right? Or well, is it, they, what? They, they made very clear, all we really care about is cutting trillions of dollars in taxes for millionaires. Congress can work out the details. I mean, they could not have been more clear about what their principles are. Steve Mnuchin went on TV Thursday morning and was asked point the blank. Treasury Secretary. Yeah. Correct. Was asked point blank, will this lower taxes for middle class people? And he said, I don't know. He wouldn't commit, <laughs> and he, he wouldn't and commit he, to it. And he, yeah. and he said, crucially, that it's not going to blow up the deficit even more because economic growth will replace the revenue because the government will be so bringing of, in more money yes. by, by so people. This is, and this is, hunting, it's nonsense. And I, look, I don't get I don't get off on screaming about the deficit. I don't think it's really that big a problem. But if you're going to like add three or four trillion dollars to it, why are you doing it just to give money to rich people? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And, well, and it's not good. It's just there's no way that they are going to just so you know, the Center for growth. Economic and Policy Research and, uh, estimates that Donald Trump himself will save sixty five million dollars. Oh, year sweet. Uh, in his own tax plan. So there you go. Pretty nice. What, Arthur? You, yeah, I didn't mean to interrupt your train of thought. Okay. Maybe. Well, look. Sorry. But so, Arthur's train so, of thought but, died. But here's the thing. <laughs> Donald Trump is not the only rich politician to be having a good week. Uh, oh, no. It's a banner week for rich people all around. I guess technically Trump has had a terrible week because his tax plan isn't going to pass. But if his tax plan did pass, it would be a good week for him. Uh, president Barack Obama, no longer president, uh, agreed this week to uh, receive $400,000 from Wall Street firm Cantor Fitzgerald to give a talk about healthcare. I don't get it. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> Why he has a like 60 million dollar book deal and a pension from when he served as president. So he he doesn't need money. No. No. So that's just that uh, he's just doing the Hillary Clinton thing, going around taking tons of money from special okay, I'll the- bite and I'll play devil's advocate you know I don't want to. What's wrong with Barack Obama making a little scratch? Well, 
there are a lot of Democrats who are saying this. Uh, and I think the, the main problem is uh, the perception of corruption undermining democracy. If you look back through Obama's presidency, there are a lot of things that Democrats like about it. But there are a lot of things that Democrats don't really like about it. No one went to jail for the financial crisis, yeah. even though company after company had to ink settlement after settlement with the federal government for allegations of fraud. And Obama and, and Eric million, Holder had the goods on these guys straight up and down. They even ple- companies, even banks, even pleaded guilty to felonies. Literally. Millions of people lost their homes. Millions of people lost their homes in the foreclosure relief plan that the Obama administration rolled out. Uh, essentially was turned into a slush fund for big banks. It caused some foreclosures. Yes, yeah, called is, the Home Affordable Modification Program HAMP. It was a scam. It was just really it was bad. bad. Yeah. So when you look at those things and you see the president taking money from Wall Street after his presidency, it looks really bad. No, it looks like a reward for job well done. I know that the Obama – I know that Obama allies have said, well, look, he passed really aggressive reforms on Wall Street, which depending on your point of view and depending on what part of the Dodd-Frank bill you're talking about, Eh, maybe so. We, we never there are good really, things and bad never things. Never really Dodd-Frank. tested Dodd Frank yeah. against the kind of shock that we experienced in two thousand eight, and we don't know if Dodd Frank would hold be a bulwark against campaign that. finance reform exists. Campaign finance regulation exists so that the, the public doesn't have to ask this question. And Democrats typically, at least publicly, support campaign finance reform. But even the president's own spokesman, when he goes out and says, "Look." Uh, you know, Obama collected more money from Wall Street than anyone in history in 2008 and still passed Dodd-Frank. He's essentially saying campaign finance regulation is not important because Barack Obama is so virtuous. Right. And, and the other way of saying that is Barack Obama collected all, more money from Wall Street than anyone in history and no one from Wall Street went to What's, jail. And the man in the White House now who set out to trash Obama's legacy in every way he can won that office by campaigning against Hillary Clinton – uh, his one of his top talking points is that she took millions of dollars from Let's say Goldman Sachs. He campaigned against Democrats. Yes. He campaigned against Democrats. He says, right. He said yeah. De- Democrats are phony. They they hang out with yep. Goldman Sachs. Yeah, they yeah, make yeah. paid speeches. They don't reveal what they say in these speeches. And so so it was just very surprising that Obama would even want that. Like yes. how is that worth four hundred thousand dollars for for people to to make this argument again? Well, I mean, four hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. Not when you have sixty five million. That's true. <laughs> That's true. I mean, this, this is the thing. You know, you're supposed to throw the ring in Mount Doom. The ring is, is bad. And the idea, the idea that you can weaponize this ring for the good of the Democrats uh, I, or, or for the good of like whatever Obama is going to try to do, his influence on public life after, after office, is, is crazy. They I, thought, we, throw I, it I mean, Mount I Doom. thought that whole idea was just proven wrong. Yes. By the outcome of the last election. Yes. You know, I know we want to throw the ring in Mount Doom, but, you know, I just do want to point out one thing is that if the Eagles would just show up earlier in the story, we'd get it there faster. But wait, I, I, want, to, I want to say this. One of the things that's funny to me recognizing this is that throughout Obama's tenure, there are all kinds of media stories badgering him about how bad he was to Wall Street bankers. People, Reporters would call up sources on Wall Street and they'd get quotes about, oh, he's terrible. Those were he's fake. Terrible. No, fake news. You you know, it's yeah. It was fake news. It was fake news because at the same time, corporations were enjoying windfall profits throughout the Obama presidency. And I think that his what, second chief of staff was the top lobbyist for J.P. Morgan Chase. I think he, we he need to. I think we told... need to understand. People out there need to understand that when they read stories like that, where a, a, a reporter goes out and gets a bunch of like fancy quotes about Wall Street and their opinions. Uh, remember, they are just lobbying for more. Their opinions aren't really sincere. They don't really dislike or like the president. They just know they can get more if they keep t- convincing the public, convincing uh, sympathetic reporters to treat and trash politicians this way. It's campaign finance in another form, really. Also, Obama told these guys that he would stand between them and the pitchforks. He literally said that. Yeah. yeah. And, and however, we now have uh, two former Goldman Sachs executives uh, pitching trillions of dollars in tax cuts for millionaires under President And Goldman Sachs bailout lawyer at the SEC. What a mess. Pretty mess. Anyway, first 100 days, it's been, well, pretty fucking interesting, I guess. Um, <laughs> we have a really, really great show today. It will, it will focus a little bit more on the plutocracy, but also on politics. So please stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back, and we're back to Harsher Mellow. Yes, we're talking about <laughs> an oddly named man, Heath Mellow. He is running to be the mayor of Omaha. It's one of the few elections this year that Democrats feel that they might be able to capitalize on some nascent anti-Trump sentiment. Uh, but as with all things the Democrats do, things are never easy. It turns out that uh, Mellow uh, is a fellow who is uh, – <laughs> Not so mellow on reproductive rights. And joining us to talk about this and the larger problem it's now suddenly posing for the Democratic Party, we have Laura Bassett. Hello. And we have Daniel Marins. Hey. Guys, um, this has been kind of a little bit of a flop sweat affair. Daniel, can you tell us what's what, tell us about this race and why it's important? So it was really weird. I was going down there to sort of follow around Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison and the whole DNC train in Texas and in then later in Nebraska and then and and kind of they were pitching me on like well if you're going to go to Nebraska the Heath Mellow people they were you know you got to talk about our guy but then this Wall Street Journal article came up that asked about that raised the fact that he had co-sponsored legislation that would have that in that required doctors to or abortion providers to inform a, a woman that she could see an ultrasound and that also that he had supported a 20-week abortion ban while he was a state lawmaker in Nebraska. So I was getting reaction to that. And then that morning, Daily Coast pulled their endorsement of him. You know, and this was sort of turning this had been turning into a kind of let's treat this like a special congressional election with some of the excitement of the Ossoff race in Georgia and in Kansas because Daily Coast got involved. Bernie Sanders sort of successor organization, our revolution had endorsed him. And all of a sudden, you've got Bernie Sanders and Keith Ellison coming in to speak at a huge pep, pep rally for him in Omaha that night. And people are kind of upset at the idea that, first of all, A, I think it, I, I've now confirmed basically from every party that this was a shock, that 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 the Sanders folks didn't know or didn't see it coming. And they won't say that on the record. Did I just reveal that? But like, <laughs> no, you know, the, the you, <laughs> you know did, that, but... <laughs> that um that that they didn't ask about it when the Nebraska State Party chair pitched them on it, and that she didn't necessarily volunteer the information. And Nebraska's branch Planned Parenthood gave him an A rating. No, no, that's they did what not. I read. So they, yeah, they walked that back. Go ahead. They they actually said we did not we did not give him a hundred percent rating as is being reported. Um, they he's voted twice against them. Wow, okay. Fake so news. in in, tw in, in, tw in 2015, he he had like they they there were like three pieces of legislation. It was his last year in the legislature, and he supported Medicaid expansion in the state, among other things. He's now on the campaign trail. Said that he would defend Planned Parenthood and 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 defend Title X funding. That's a big thing. And also, when we asked him about it, as the story was developing, he said, I'll protect reproductive rights. He since said to the nation, of course, that means abortion, too. And believe it or not, this is an issue in the municipal level because of clinic safety and providing safe access sure. to, to the one clinic of three in the entire state of Nebraska, one of which is in Omaha. So it's a real, real issue there. He said, I would never dream of doing anything to impact women's reproductive rights. But Laura, he... He not only dreamt of it, he did it twice. He co-sponsored yeah. this ultrasound bill. And I just want to point out, 
again, that the the ultrasound bill is perhaps the knee plus ultra of stupidity when it comes to policy in this arena. It's one of the more insidious bills because it has no justification whatsoever. The only purpose of it is to try to change a woman's mind. And really just um, and traumatizes them. It traumatizes a woman and shame her for her decision. And also it presumes that she's stupid, that she doesn't know what's in her body, that she doesn't know that she can have an ultrasound if she wants. Um, so it's really just intruding on the provider-patient relationship um, in a kind of puzzling way. Uh, but this, this, what's happened here in Nebraska, this blows the weird contours of the Democratic Party all over the place, right? Well, it's interesting because it's forced all kinds of major Democrats to come out and pontificate on whether um, the Democratic Party should be a big tent party and include anti-abortion uh, politicians. And so they're actually split on it. Perez came out after this whole controversy and said, I think that now for the DNC to support a Democratic candidate, they're going to have to support abortion rights. And then Pelosi and Warren um, came out and sort of said the opposite. Uh, you know, we have colleagues who have different views than us, and we're okay with that. We want to be a big tent party. Um, so it's kind of going to be interesting to see where the party goes from here in terms of being accepting of candidates like Joe Manchin and Bob Casey and Senator John Bell Edwards in Louisiana. And I mean, even some, you know, Tim Kaine was anti-choice before Hillary Clinton picked him as a running mate. And so this has been something that the party has accepted for a really long time. And now they're facing this moment where the reproductive rights movement is saying this is this is crazy. We are we have a Supreme Court that might actually overturn Roe v. Wade at some point, and the Democratic Party is going to have to get serious about uniting on this issue. Yeah, I mean, what's what's interesting is that when you talk to Republicans about this and you ask them why would any woman sign up to your policy platform when you have uh, a sort of deep and abiding uh, disrespect for reproductive rights, they'll tell you that on the other side of the ledger, we're promising a lot of economic benefits, we're promising a lot of economic security, promising national security. There's a lot of things besides uh, reproductive rights out there on the menu. Surely women think about other things than reproductive rights. And you know, the point I would always make in those circumstances is like, well, I mean, you're promising people benefits, but you're also telling them they can't really be full citizens. There's, There's a lot of people who won't take that trade. But in a sense... The, the Democrats have to face this choice of their own as well. You know, one of the reasons I think there's some friction with Bernie Sanders in this is that he's been historically kind of loosey-goosey on the issue of reproductive rights. Not in the way he's voted, not in the way he's voted, but in the way he's always talked about this in terms of, well, economic benefits come first. Um, if you want to, uh, If you want to really protect... Reproductive rights, you need to have a majority of Democrats. I guess you need to have a bigger majority of Democrats if you're going to have people who won't support it. Um, and in that sense, like Bernie kind of portrays the fact he's suddenly pragmatic about things. Right. So you hit on a really, really important point, which is just the, the whole the, – the, the division within the party that this exposed kind of on – Bernie versus the Bernie wing and and some other folks who who I, I think that right I, I think that part of the, this thing is that here you have Bernie Sanders coming down you have people in the party who felt like he was always holier than thou and then it's sort of like well you're holier than thou on economic issues but are you are you um, why are you so permissive and accommodating when it comes to these choice issues and 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 there are then, a lot of women who think then, that on, that then on the flip side their rights to achieve the right. economic goals he wants. Right, and and he would say, "I'm 100% pro-choice. My right, record right, right, says right. that, and that you know I try to do." It. I, I think what made this more complicated was that our revolution had endorsed Mello, and Bernie had actually sort of offhandedly called John Ossoff the candidate who is pro-choice in Georgia, not right. a progressive. Yeah, he not then progressive. clarified that, but that was an unforced error. And I think, but now now that this has sort of you know you've got Pelosi and Warren coming out saying it's a Big Ten party. You also had. Two Nebraska reproductive rights activists tell the nation that they were sort of that they're getting behind Mello because the best the the, the lesser of two evils and sort of like they they feel like he's evolved in some ways and and that they were annoyed that these national groups stepped over them and you've got Bernie people that that have that are sort of saying wait a minute was this is this really a consistent new principle or was this just something from people in the in in the non Bernie wing of the party who specifically wanted to seize on this moment 
to make that point and and why hasn't it been enforced consistently throughout and 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 they point to differences sort of with 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 Tim Kaine Tim Kaine having established a record of voting against these things whereas Heath Mello has changed his rhetoric and he also points out that that when it came to the ultrasound bill that it was going to be a mandatory bill and that he tried to water it down and certainly some some people in the in the region um corroborate that but you know that some would say that that's splitting hairs here so it's it's become this this broader larger thing and i don't think you know if i though i work with them all the time tom perez has you know by by i mean sort of swing one way and then the other uh in some ways he's pissed off two camps but yeah. i mean he's the reproductive rights community is is pleased that he took a firm stance but then you have you know the nebraska state chair who's sort of like this guy threw us under the bus and and all right, this right. stuff so it, it 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 just became a big mess um but you know look i i think that there, there were there were points at, at at every stage of this where different players could have communicated more clearly and and certainly doing the research better I think that there is a middle ground, which is not holding a rally for the guy and still helping him get elected against another anti-choice Republican candidate. So that's just a thought. Laura, uh, Katie McDonough at Fusion uh, made an excellent point this week when she pointed out the Democratic Party has Democratic Party has has really been kind of bad about talking about abortion for quite some time now. They uh, they speak in euphemisms. They kind of couch in language. They dance around the issue. Uh, They don't really come to grips with the reality of women's lives in the way perhaps women would prefer. Uh, a uh, Sarah Cliff at Vox, uh, in a survey that she reported, uh, found out that fully four in ten people, when they think of themselves on the abortion spectrum, they do not use the words pro-life or pro-choice. Or, or rather, uh, there's a portion of that that say they're both and a portion of them say that they're neither. And these are the terms that everyone uses to frame this debate, including the Democrats. Is there something to the the idea that the Democratic Party just isn't being direct, honest, real about this issue? I think it's really complicated because unlike other issues uh, for progressives, like I, I often like to compare this to the LGBT rights movement, which has sort of ticked forward um, in, in terms of progress since the 70s, right? And the abortion debate really hasn't. Um, if you if you look at polls from 1973 and polls today, they're the same. I mean, the public's basically split half and half on whether abortion should be legal or not. And then, of course, it changes depending on how you frame the question. So I think Democrats understand that they're their constituents are going to be all over the board on abortion rights. And so I think their rhetoric um, or their reticence to, to talk about that kind of reflects that. But I think this most came to a head when it was sort of Bernie versus Hillary and, and the, the Bernie bros were saying, um, well, Bernie has uh, as perfect a record as Hillary on abortion. And the reproductive rights movement was saying, but he's not a champion. He's not a champion of this sure, issue. Yeah. He doesn't like to talk about it. He thinks it's a side issue. He's like, if you force him to talk about it, he'll give a fine answer. But Hillary is trying to champion this champion it and move it forward and be this sort of outspoken um, person on abortion rights and I think that's kind of that's kind of what the, what the party is facing right now is like do we do we only care about how a person's going to vote on this issue or do we want champions on this issue and I and um, honestly I think the politically smart thing to do is probably more towards Bernie's camp but I think that the the you know, bold and brave thing to do is is more towards the way that Hillary and Pelosi are, are facing the issue. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. And there are a lot of issues I think that Democrats face the same choices, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, I wanted just to to end with the, the with uh, if you had any kind of notion about whether anyone's really learned any lesson from this. Um, do you think that this is going to be something that trips? people up because I'll be honest with you I can I can see why you wouldn't want to take someone who say uh, supports an economic platform that ranges from you know something that maybe Obama wants to do something Bernie Sanders wants to do uh, health care between the two polls as well uh, who wants to champion voting rights for 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 those who are having a stripped away um, who isn't a, a complete nutbag on foreign policy but then they come with this I'm also a little pro-life over here guys I, I I don't think you'd want to throw that person into the Republican Party if you get away with it I'm not even sure the Republican Party would take that guy just because he's pro-choice and all this other stuff attached to him. What, what do people like that do? What do people like that do? That, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I think, I mean, look, it, I having been in Nebraska, virtually, I mean, 
they're, they're desperate for any old Democrat. Like, do you have a pulse? And and they were they sort of um, <laughs> they, they were they were confused a lot of them by this issue because the biggest issue in the Omaha election is potholes. Seriously, like, there's a whole issue that like the mayor. In some cases, there are streets that have been replaced with gravel. Anyway, it's a, it's big a really thing. good point. The mayor but, of Omaha is not going to set national abortion. Well, but, yeah. I, I sorry and sorry to interrupt, but I just want to jump in because uh, what's relevant is like, for instance, uh, I'm from Louisiana. We have Governor John Bell Edwards, who's a Democrat and who is who is anti-abortion. And he spoke at the DNC um, earlier this summer, and I went to see him speak about this issue. And he was saying, if the Democrats are going to exclude people like me, they're not going to do well in the Deep South, um, where people are deeply religious and have deeply held views on this. And he's like, the only way a Democrat can be the governor of Louisiana is if you allow an anti-abortion Democrat to get in here, because that's how the state feels on the issue. So I do think there's something to having a having a bigger tent. Maybe we should just stop talking about it as a tent. I mean, tents are pretty rickety. Do you want to go back to potholes? Wind comes along. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> just saying wind comes along, blows the tent right down. Zach Carter, I don't know if you know, he, he lives in a tent right here in the studio, and it's not a big tent. So I mean, that's a political statement for he, Zach. He should, and, yeah, he should. Know. He should. It's it's too bad Zach isn't here because he could really weigh in on on the whole tension. Can, can I just cut in one thing about about lessons learned here? My experience when I've been trying to nail people down on this is that everybody's kind of in their stance. I certainly think you know maybe this was a win for I, I think it was for the reproductive rights community, and so I don't know if they're going to learn a lesson to not do it again. I think it might be a lesson to do it yeah, more, sure, sure, yeah. but. I think the the person that maybe left in an introspective lesson learning position most is DNC Chair Tom Perez because this was his first real test of kind of being a traffic cop between different wings of the party and he confused some people and and pleased others so he'll he'll take away from that what he wants. And the lesson for him to learn is to like google a candidate before which is what the journal reporter apparently did. Right. <laughs> like just no it, like nobody googled him, you know. It's like right there to find. Okay. Uh, sturdier structures than tents. Learn to Google. Uh, those, are, those are the lessons that we have. And yeah. Fix those potholes. We should run for something. We, we got to figure it out. We really do. Uh, <laughs> we've got it all. We've got it all upstairs. All right. Uh, Daniel and Laura, thank you for being with us. We will be right back. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as always by... Jason Lincolns. You can just say my name. I guess I could. Uh, We have a really special guest today. Uh, He is a professor at the University of Southern California. But don't go away. He's actually cool. (laughs) His name is Jonathan Taplin. He used to, to manage the band, like the band. He's produced movies for Martin Scorsese. And he has an awesome new book called Move Fast and Break Things. And it's all about... Silicon Valley and how they dominate every aspect of your life and make it terrible. Jonathan Six, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. So, uh, you know, I think particularly in in sort of uh, upper echelon liberal Democratic Party circles, we think of companies like Facebook, Google, and Amazon as these progressive kind of do-gooder versions of corporate America, where they have like Disneyland playgrounds at their offices and people are nice and they don't do evil things. Uh, what's what's wrong with that sort of general perception? Well, I mean, they they do have a very good PR arms, and and you know they seem to be right on gay rights and things like that. But their treatment of the people who actually create the content that makes the most attraction to their sites is horrendous. So, I mean, just an example on YouTube: uh, if you were a musician that was reasonably popular and could get a million downloads on iTunes, you could make $900,000. If you get a million streams on YouTube, you could make $900. So that 1,000x factor is is the big problem with these platforms. They end up taking most of the money and journalist organizations, newspapers, musicians, photographers are left holding nothing but chump change. So what should public policy do about this? I mean, it, it, do, you, do you see a, a role for the government in in correcting this sort of imbalance? Well, I mean, there are two schools of thought on this, and I'm, I'm not going to say I have absolutely the right answer, but one is these companies should never have been allowed to get as big as they are. So that would say that, you know, Google should have never been allowed to d- buy DoubleClick or AdMob or 
many of the other companies it's acquired, or Facebook shouldn't have been allowed to buy Instagram or WhatsApp. Um, but given that they've already done that, the first thing would be that they shouldn't be able to buy more companies and get increase their monopoly power. I mean, when you think that Google has 88% of the search market, Facebook and all its allied companies have about 70% of the mobile social market, Amazon has 75% of the book market, they're already giant monopolies. And as I point out in the book, they're also the five largest companies in the world are Apple, uh, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Microsoft. And that's a relatively recent phenomenon, right? Yeah. You know, 10 years ago, General Electric and ExxonMobil were at the top of the chart. So this is a very new phenomenon. And um, I don't think from a technology point of view or a regulatory point of view, people are really understanding that. Do you think at this point in time, I, when I when I had a grad out of grad school, it was right before the the '90s tech bubble burst, and I think we look back on that era as one of a lot of reckless success, a lot of money sloshing around, uh, going to firms that didn't have clear ideas what they were doing. Are we at the verge of another tech bubble right now? I mean, I do seem to think that the same bad incentives are, are out there. A big story last week was this. Uh, Juicero machine that essentially took all this capital to make a machine that could do something that your hands could do. Are we are we on the verge of some kind of uh, reckoning, or are these monopolies so entrenched that it's not going to happen? Well, I'm old enough to have gone through the 2000 dot com crash, so there have always been stupid companies, you know, Pets dot com or whatever. Right. So that isn't to say that, but but I would venture that if nothing changes, Google in 10 years will still be the dominant search engine with 88% market share and Facebook and its allied companies will be the dominant social media companies and Amazon will eviscerate Sears and Kmart and, you know, hundreds of other retailers. So I don't think these companies are going to get displaced by other startups, um, which is always... Of course, the PR thing that these companies put out, oh, you know, somebody could be in their garage right now, it's going to wipe us out. Well, look at Snapchat, which is in a garage here in Venice, California. And (laughs) as soon as they went public, you know, Facebook did everything they could to kill them by ripping off every new feature they have and and replicating it on their platforms. And Facebook having having, you know, billions of users and Snapchat just having hundreds of millions of users, it's very easy for uh, Facebook to make Snapchat's life miserable. So how did you get uh, drawn into the nerdy vortex of uh, anti-monopoly tech policy? I mean, you have had a career doing things that are conventionally cool. Yeah, well, it started fairly simply. I was a tour manager when I got out of Princeton in 1969 for Bob Dylan and the band. And the Dylan didn't tour that much, but the band did. And the band made some great records in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, eventually they broke up, but they were able to live off the earnings of those records because they were so good that people kept listening to the Wade and the, up on Cripple Creek and Nike Turtle Dixie Down. And so their record royals continued to pour in. And then, you know, in the late 80s, the CD was introduced that so then people kind of renewed their whole record collection and that came on strong. And so they were able to live. And then the drummer in the band, Levon Helm, got throat cancer in 2000. And 2000 also happened to be the point when Napster was introduced. And the record royalties for old records just literally stopped. And so he went from making about $100,000 a year to making almost nothing at just the point where he desperately needed money for his health care. And so that to me seemed like the ultimate unfair situation. And um, so I 
I was in a debate with Alexis Ohanian of Reddit, who, who basically, and this was about three or four years ago, who basically said, well, musicians have no right to make money off of old recordings. I proudly get everything off of pirate sites. And I said, well, Levon's problem is people like you. And he kind of didn't respond well to that. And then I began to think about where does this derive from? And ultimately, I ended up on platforms like YouTube, where every single song of the band was there for free with millions of, uh, you know, uses, and they weren't mm. getting any money off it. And that, to me, seemed to be where the problem, and the problem flew back to these monopolies uh, like Google and now Facebook and others. Now, you make the point in the book that, you know, even though musicians are not receiving money from these platforms, the, the platforms themselves are making plenty of money. Is, is this an, an issue where, you know, we could have new regulations on because they're basically advertising platforms, right? I mean, where the, the government could impose, you know, profit sharing uh, requirements on, on ad platforms that get to a certain size. Well, look, I'm not positive there's a government solution to everything. I mean, I have a couple of solutions for Google because I think it's, it has become a utility. But in general, what I'm asking is that the platforms that are advertising supported be more generous with the incredible profits that are flowing into their coffers. You think about the margins, the net margins at Google are in the 30%. That is, after all costs and everything, 30%. Wow. The net margins at a company like CBS, which is also an advertising-sponsored uh, media company, are somewhere in the 10 to 11%. So what's the difference? The difference is that CBS spends millions of dollars on producing programming and paying talent. And Google doesn't. Google is a free rider. It gets all the advertising money and doesn't have to put up any money um, for content. And the same with Facebook. Um, the face margins at Facebook are very similar. So all I'm saying is that they should share more of the bounty. And, and why are these the biggest companies in the world? Because they have these extraordinary margins that they're able to make billions of dollars off of. And they have user bases that are in the billions. You know, Jonathan, I want I wanted to invite you to take a look at, at our industry, uh, give you evaluation of, of the media writ large, because I'm sure you, I'm sure you know that, you know, companies like ours have become more platform dependent. And, uh, you know, we frequently enter into deals with organizations like Facebook that to me feel quite Faustian. I wondered if you had a, had an opinion about our industry and our maybe the way we're implicated in this, maybe the way we're victimized by this. Well, are you talking about HuffPo writ large, or are you talking about the podcasting industry? No, no, not the podcasting <laughs> industry. But you know, organizations organizations like HuffPost, organizations like uh, uh, you know The Verge, Vox, you know, uh, newspapers in general, digital media. Yeah. Well, look the. The revenue, for instance, at newspapers since Google came online have declined about 78%. <laughs> I mean, that's just catastrophic. If revenue is at, you know, automobile manufacturers had declined that, there would be, you know, congressional hearings and stuff like that. But people just ignore it. They say, oh, well, that's just technology. But, you know, guys like Ben Thompson at Strategery say, look, Facebook and Google are taking all the ad revenue and leaving the producers of the content with the scraps. And, you know, I mean, just thinking about podcasts, you know, one would argue that podcasts have extraordinarily potential for ad revenue because, People stay with it, and the ads are interstitial. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you guys do that, but but there's pretty good evidence that people actually listen to the ads as opposed to skipping through them on their DVR or, or e ignoring them on the web. So, uh, you know, there ought to be a decent economy. I mean, I make the 
the argument. There's a music blogger named Bob Lefschitz who says, oh, musicians should just get over this idea that they're going to make money on their recordings. They should just be touring 300 days a year. And my argument is he's essentially saying musicians have to make money the way they did in the 17th century. Mm, Rent a room, lock the doors, pay people, make people pay to get in a physical space with them. But on the other hand, there are, as far as the Annenberg Innovation Lab is concerned, there are going to be 5 billion smartphones in the world by 2018 or 2019. So let's just say you could get 5% of that market and sell them something for 50 cents. Well, that's like $100 million. It's like absurd. I, I would settle for $100 million, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I mean, I, I, so your, your book focuses on um, on Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Is there a reason why you didn't discuss uh, Apple, the, the other of the four big tech well, companies? Apple Apple is not a, a monopoly. I mean, I just saw a chart this today. Apple has about 28% of the smartphone market. Uh, so... I mean, Apple is essentially a hardware business, and it's a very competitive business with not just Samsung, but lots of Chinese manufacturers, lots of people playing in that market. And, and quite frankly, in the, in the operating system part of the handset, Google has dominant share. I mean, I think it's almost 80%. So one can't imagine that Apple is anywhere close to being a monopoly. Um, So the question then becomes, where are the companies that have more than 70% market share in a a market segment? And those are Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Well, Jonathan Taplin, thanks so much for joining us. The book, everyone, is called Move Fast and Break Things. It's outstanding. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by author Jonathan Taplin, as well as HuffPost reporters Laura Bassett, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Daniel Marins. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store, and while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.